Well, good morning, Revolution Church. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, I've been introduced as Samantha. They got it right. That's my name. Uh, and it's just, it truly is a joy and a blessing to be at a new building with the body of Christ. We are all part of the same church, the same body because of Jesus, and it's wonderful to be worshiping here with you. You have a sign out here that says something about party, and I can already tell that that's, that's real for you, that this is a community that believes that church should be and can be fun, and that worshiping Jesus together is a joy. Uh, and I'm blessed by that this morning. So thank you for having me. It's a, just a privilege to be here. Best summer ever, I get to be part of just a little bit of that as well. And so I was thinking, what does make summer great? And we'll just get this piece of it out of the way now. Yes, I am seven months pregnant. And my first child was born in February. That's a much better time to be pregnant. If there are any other moms out there who had children later in the summer, I won't do it again. Uh, and so this has just been a little bit of a different summer for my husband and I, but uh, we're making the best of it. We got to golf in Logansport last night. Uh, and so that's, that's a little bit about summer and me, and we're just going to, we're going to dive in this morning. But I have one more thing. Your leaders truly have gotten it right that the bow at the end of the best summer ever is celebrating baptism. And I'm looking forward to hearing uh, what that service entails and just getting to celebrate with you from afar. This morning, I want to take a look at the story of one of Jesus' closest followers, one of his 12 disciples. This guy was a fisherman by trade until Jesus called him to become a fisher of men. Throughout the gospel accounts, we see this disciple sort of leading the pack, sometimes well and sometimes not so well. We see him take some really great leaps of faith in following Jesus. We see him ask some pretty serious questions of Jesus as well. And he's the first one to declare that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that the Jewish people have been waiting for. Anybody know which one I'm talking about? Peter. Yeah, the disciple's name is Peter. I could have given you so many more clues that would have made that an easier guess, but I didn't want to steal all the thunder of today. So we're going to talk a little bit about Peter. This, this story really hits close to my heart. I just see... Peter trying so desperately hard to follow Jesus well. And sometimes he does, and sometimes he falls on his face. And I just can relate to that, that as much as I try to follow Jesus well, sometimes it doesn't, doesn't pan out. It doesn't work the way I, I saw it. And, and I see that in Peter as well. Peter's name is listed first in all four gospel lists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That just tells me again, he's, he's a leader of the pack. He's clearly a leader and a spokesman for the group that was true during Jesus's earthly ministry, and it became even more true after Jesus ascended into heaven, after he returned, uh, after his death, his resurrection, he ascended into heaven, and that's when Peter really becomes sort of the, the rock of the church, that early church. He's one important piece of it. Unlike many of the other disciples, we know a little bit about Peter's life before Jesus and his family. Uh, we know, like I said, that he's a fisherman. We know that he was married. There's a story of Jesus healing his mother-in-law. And we know that he had at least one brother named Andrew, who was also a disciple. I've always found the relationship between Peter and Jesus to be very interesting. There's a sort of intimacy in the friendship. Peter was one of the 12 disciples, but he was also one of the inner three. 
It seems that Jesus sort of pulled aside and invested more deeply into Peter, James, and John. Those were the only three that were allowed in the room when Jesus healed a guy named Jairus' daughter. They were the three who got to see Jesus' transfiguration. He took them up on the mountain, and they saw him change his form. They saw his face shine like the sun. His clothes became white like light. There was a voice from heaven. What an incredible experience that these three got to have with Jesus. Peter was among them. And then the same three were the closest to Jesus when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed. And so though John, again one of these three, declares that he is the disciple whom Jesus loves, there's this intimacy to the friendship between Peter and Jesus. Jesus is clearly the leader and Peter the follower. They don't get that confused. Sometimes I think we forget that Jesus lived his earthly life at the same time as the disciples, but he was still their creator. And so I, I watch him observe sometimes and just seem to enjoy watching the lives of the disciples. And Peter in particular, he sort of got this impulsiveness to him, this, this passion, and you can see Jesus just observing that, watching it, and then reining it in and redirecting it when necessary. Jesus is still the creator. Peter has this impulsiveness about him. He tends to act and then think. Now, I mentioned this, this story, the life of Peter is one that I can relate to. This piece is not something I can relate to. I'm definitely more of a think first, act later sort of person. Peter was the opposite. He tended to just move and then realize what he had done. Uh, for example, when Jesus calls Peter and Andrew to follow him to be uh, a disciple, it says that they just immediately left their nets. They were fishing at the time. They just left their nets and went. It's like without thinking. Uh, Peter was the one who jumps out into the water uh, when Jesus calls him and, and just begins to walk on the water. And it's the action that gets him out, in, out of the boat, and it's the thinking that causes him to begin to sink. He thinks, or he acts, and then he thinks. This great faith in action. And then Peter's the one who pulls a sword and strikes a soldier on the ear, uh, again in the, the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that Jesus was arrested. He, he just acts. He's a passionate man of action. There are also some moments of conflict and disappointment between Peter and Jesus. Just a few verses after Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, he boldly rebukes Jesus for predicting his own death. And if we put ourselves in Peter's shoes, it's almost too painful to read. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I know there have been plenty of moments in my life when I did not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So there were some moments of, of discord, disappointment between Jesus and this bold, passionate follower of his. And Peter made some pretty big mistakes in his attempts to follow after Jesus. Perhaps none more direct than on the night Jesus was arrested, and that's where I want to really focus a little bit of our time this morning. Peter's big mistake, we might call it. All four Gospels record what is known as Peter's denial or disownership of Jesus. 
Before we can go there, we have to go back to the Last Supper. Jesus knew his time on earth was coming to an end, that he was about to face what he had come to do, and that was to die a criminal's death, even though he was anything but a criminal. And so he gathers his closest followers, his closest friends for one last meal. It's the Passover, which is the time for the Jewish people to remember what God had done for their ancestors and calling them out of slavery, out of Egypt. They're, they're celebrating this time, and, and yet this meal with Jesus and his, his disciples is anything but celebratory. There's, I'm sure, a somberness to the moment. It's not lighthearted as Jesus informs the group that he is going to be betrayed and handed over to be killed. Now here's what we miss if we've heard this story before, because we tend to think Peter's the one who denies Jesus, but, but Jesus predicted that all of his disciples would desert him that night, that all of these men who had followed him from town to town, countryside to countryside, who had seen him speak and teach and heal and love people in a way that they had never experienced before. All of these men who had left family and livelihood and everything to follow him would desert him at his hour of greatest need. Here's how Matthew puts it in his gospel. On the way to the Mount of Olives, Jesus told them, tonight all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Now here's where Peter gets singled out. Peter declared, even if everyone deserts you, I will never desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. No, no, Peter insisted. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. Now, spoiler alert, if you've heard this story before, you know that Peter does in fact go on to deny Jesus, not once, but three times. Sometimes I think Peter gets a bad rap. Maybe he was just trying to get through these conversations that he's having. People are asking him these questions. He's, he's trying to be there, trying to be present with Jesus. Sometimes I think maybe we're a little hard on Peter, right? Like this, what would I have done in the moment? But the words translated denied or disowned here, they're used interchangeably. To really understand the weight of this denial, we can look at where those words are used elsewhere in Scripture and realize that Peter can't get let off the hook that easily that this was a big deal. For example, Matthew 10, 33, it's Jesus who says, whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my father. Peter heard Jesus speak these words. In fact, they were spoken to Peter and, and some of the other disciples uh, when Jesus was sending them out to minister on his behalf. This is some of the instruction that he gives them. If you disown me in front of people, I will disown you. I will not know you in front of the Father. Luke 9.23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Again, this is Jesus. It's one of the times when he tells his disciples that he's going to be killed, which is something that would have been hard for them to swallow in their expectations for the Messiah. But nonetheless, they're, they're getting this information from Jesus. You have to deny yourselves. You might have to give up comforts 
You might have to give up your desires, what you want, for my sake, not the other way around. 1 John 2.23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. This is a little piece of theology given by John later. It comes from his letter after Jesus' life. He's urging all of those who he's writing to to believe that Jesus truly is the Son of God. He's who he said he is, and it matters that that's who he truly is, that you cannot have the Father, you cannot believe in the one true God if you do not acknowledge Jesus. This matters, this thing that Peter did. And there he is, passionate, devoted, somewhat impulsive follower of Jesus. And in a span of just a few hours, he does exactly what he said he wouldn't do, what Jesus predicted that he would. He's asked by three different people, weren't you with Jesus? Weren't you one of the ones that we saw him with? No, 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 no. You must have, you must have the wrong guy. I, I wasn't, I don't know him. Three times. Didn't you know him? Or you're from Galilee. I can hear the accent. No, 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 no. I'm just here, just watching. Three times, Peter says no. Why? Why, Peter? You were the first to declare that Jesus was the Messiah. You knew. You saw all of these things. You were there. And yet, in this moment, you, you can't even say, yes, I knew him. Yes, I know who he is. Why? You just said you would never do this thing. Before I became a parent, I vowed to myself that I would never, I would never get so frustrated with my child as I had seen some other parents get. And in 17 months, which is embarrassing to admit, there have been moments where her logic does not add up to my logic. And we've been frustrated with one another. I said I never would. Maybe you've done this in another way. Um, overeating, I like food, I enjoy it. There are t I'm gonna ask for lunch uh, recommendations later. You shouldn't do that while you're preaching though. People are already thinking about it. Maybe you've done this with overeating as I have, that you just, you look at it, it's delicious, it's wonderful, and then as soon as it's over, you're like, oh, why did I do that? My body is a temple. Why did I eat that much? And you vow, I will never do that again. I am never going to get to this point of misery so that the rest of my day is just not pleasant. But the next, like, gathering comes around, right? I vowed that I never would. You look around and you think, even if everybody else, I will never. I've done this on a more serious note with some sin patterns in my life that I vowed I will never do that again. God, I won't do it again. I've swore it off time and again, and yet the struggle remained for years. It's easy for us to wonder, what in the world were you thinking, Peter? <laughs> but when I read this story, I see myself. All the disciples denied and disowned Jesus that night. Some of them fled. Some of them hid. Some of them, like Peter, followed and then failed. Sometimes I'm the loudmouth who vows, I will never deny you, Jesus. But I've denied him too. 
not to a servant girl around a fire, but I've denied his authority in my life. I've denied his, his best in the moment for something I think is best in the moment. And as soon as the rooster crowed, which was the timestamp Jesus had used to frame Peter's denial, Peter realized what he had done. And he broke down and wept bitterly. And I imagine that's what my response would be, perhaps should be, as well. There's no direct evidence that Peter was at the cross when Jesus was crucified, which I find just a little bit interesting given that his name is often listed first. Perhaps he was there and his name is just not listed. Maybe he couldn't bring himself to go. Either way, I imagine those three days were not easy for him. That he, even after Jesus was raised from the dead and, and, and appeared to his disciples, he must have had some mixed feelings knowing how dramatically he had failed right at the end. And then he goes back to what he knows. Have you ever made a mistake and done that, gone back to something familiar? He goes back to fishing. The disciples are waiting for Jesus. They've already encountered the risen Lord, but they're told to wait in, in a location until he returns again. And while they're waiting, Peter just can't quite take it anymore. And so for whatever reason, perhaps nostalgia's sake, uh, perhaps because he's grasping for something familiar in the midst of all of the chaos that's gone on lately, he goes fishing. And being the leader that he is, he takes some of the disciples with him. And despite their years of experience, and I'm sure their best efforts that night, it's an epic failure. They catch absolutely nothing, not a single fish. I don't know anything about fishing, but they're doing this overnight, and that seems to be the thing to do in this time and place, to fish overnight. This scene that comes next is one of my favorite scenes in all of the Bible. Because Jesus has just demonstrated in just grand fashion that he is truly divine, that he is truly, clearly God by defeating death. And then this scene is so beautifully human, this encounter he has with the disciples on the beach that morning. After a long, unsuccessful night, not unlike the night that Jesus had first called some of these same men to be his followers. They're greeted by a stranger on the beach who tells them to put their nets on the right side of the boat. Now, again, I don't know a whole lot about fishing, but I imagine after they have been there all night long, they have tried everything that they know to do, they must have thought, who does this guy think he is telling us just put your net on the other side of the boat? And obviously it will happen for you. But they, they listen for whatever reason. Perhaps they had an inkling that this was no stranger on the beach. For whatever reason, they, they follow through, they take their net and they put it on the other side of the boat. And through divine intervention and supernatural action, they catch a ridiculous amount of fish. We have to pause for a second because this just cracks me up. John includes how many fish they catch. 153. That is not a round number. He did not just throw a round number in there. This is the exact number of fish that these men caught. Can you picture them like kids in a candy store that day? That morning, they're, look at this. Look at how many fish we caught. This is insane. 
And they're counting all the way to 153. Sometimes, sometimes it's the little things that Jesus does that amaze us. If we will just pause long enough and see them. And so 153 fish are suddenly caught in their net when they follow this instruction from the stranger on the beach. And they must have figured it out. John and Peter at least realize this guy is not a stranger. This is Jesus. And Peter characteristically jumps in the water and this time swims. He decides that's faster than him trying to walk. And he swims straight to Jesus, jumps out of the boat, and everyone else follows to shore. Now, they may call it the Last Supper, but this breakfast on the beach had to be one of the most memorable. Jesus, the servant leader that he is, already has the fire going. He's ready for them to join him for breakfast, and he serves them with this catch that he has just allowed them to get. It must have been just too memorable for John not to include in his gospel account And it also bookends the call of some of the disciples. Like I said, it's a very similar story from when Jesus first encountered some of these men. But for us, I think it does one more thing. I think this story illustrates the barrenness of Christian labor when we try to do it with our own efforts. No matter how much experience we have, how much training we have, what kind of effort and intention we put into Christian labor and and working for God and doing His will, if He is not in it, if He is not behind it, if He is not leading it, nothing's going to happen. In the next section, we see Jesus' response to Peter's big mistake. He's not surprised by Peter's failure, just as he's not surprised by ours. And so still on the beach that morning, here's what we see. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Aren't you glad that we get what that means? Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter's threefold denial is met by a threefold reinstatement by Jesus. Such grace, such incredible grace. There's a lot of speculation about what the words in, in this short conversation really mean. There's, uh, there are different words in the Greek for our one word, love. And Peter and Jesus are not using the same word. There's sort of levels to, to these words that they're using. Jesus uses the higher level of love than Peter can bring himself to use. I don't know exactly why. Perhaps Peter has been humbled by the empty words that that he realized he had spoken earlier. 
Perhaps it's an indication of him being humbled because he chooses the lower of the loves in his response. Regardless, I don't believe Peter's love for Jesus is actually in question or doubt here. Just as Peter says, Jesus, you know all things. Jesus knew that Peter loved him. He was molding Peter's passion into pastoral action for the sake of the church that he was going to leave behind in the hands of his followers in just a short amount of time. He's speaking, Jesus is speaking forgiveness, grace, and purpose into Peter's mistakes. Has Jesus ever done that for you? Do you believe that he can? At the end of the passage, we saw Jesus prophesies Peter's martyrdom. And although scripture doesn't record it, there are other historical sources that tell us Peter did not deny Jesus at that moment. It's worth mentioning that John's gospel, which is the one that we read from, is the only one that includes Peter's reinstatement by Jesus, this incredible conversation of grace. John's the only one that includes it. We don't know why Matthew, Mark, or Luke don't have it, but for me, that's a subtle indication that for some people, our mistakes are going to get the last word but not so with Jesus. That's not how it works with him. Despite the big mistakes we make, we have a bigger God who is always willing and ready to forgive and in fact pursues us in that grace and forgiveness. So we've looked a little bit at the life of Peter, his relationship with Jesus, some of the dynamics that they uh, had together as leader and follower, as creator and creation. We saw Peter's big mistake. And then we saw his response to his own mistake. And perhaps we can see ourselves a little bit in that. And now we've seen Jesus' response. How wonderful that those two responses are very different. As we step away from the story, I want to ask two questions this morning. Number one, what do we learn about God? It's just a great question we can ask anytime we approach a passage of Scripture. What do we learn about God by reading this passage? The first thing I see is that God is a God of grace. In Romans 5.20, Paul writes, Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. God's grace is one that pursues us. But it's not a permissive grace. This is an important distinction. It's not permissive. It cannot be trampled on. It's not given to us so that we can go on making the same mistakes and and just coming back to forgiveness. It's not a permissive grace. It's a transforming grace. Something happens when we truly encounter Jesus' grace in our lives. Now, I mentioned earlier that I have struggled with one particular thing or another, and that has been a struggle for some time that's real for us as humans. I don't, I don't mean to discount that experience, and I know that God is in that and continues to work through it, and there is victory at the end of it, but the distinction I'm making is that we cannot intentionally choose to keep on sinning in that way, that God's grace is meant to transform and change us. It's not a permissive grace. By God's grace, sinners become saints, deniers become proclaimers, the weak become strong. 
The second thing I think we can learn about God, and I'm sure there's more to this list than the two I will mention, but the second thing is that God uses sinful, weak people to advance his kingdom, to advance his purposes. Now, why does he do that? Because there are no other types of people. That's it. Peter went on to be a pillar of the early church. He was always a man of bold, passionate action and words. And those very things that got him into trouble at times were the things that God used for his purposes. God uses sinful, weak people because that's what we all are. Praise God, he doesn't leave us there. Peter learned to submit to the Spirit and to follow. The second question I want to ask is, what do we learn about ourselves? The first thing I see is that our obedience matters. Sometimes when I'm facing temptation, I forget that. I forget that, that God, God is concerned with how I respond in this moment. The enemy can sort of throw those lies into my head, much like he did Eve in the garden. Like, does God really care what you do every moment? Did he really say, is this really that big of a deal? I think our obedience is evidence of love. And this story shows me that, that God is concerned with our obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If I'm honest, that always felt a little abrasive to me. Like, Jesus, is that really what you meant? If you love me, keep my commandments? Is that really the statement you meant to leave us with? It is, and I've come to realize why he had to be so clear about that truth, that our obedience matters. Here's the second thing I think we can learn about ourselves. Our mistakes don't define us. Now, you've probably heard that in culture, in society. It's only true because of Jesus. Our mistakes don't have to define us. Friends, do you need to hear that today? Does, is there someone here who needs to hear that, that that thing that came to mind when I used the word mistake is not the end of your story? that there is forgiveness, that there is grace there because of Jesus, that that's our truth uh, because of the Lord and Savior that we worship and serve today. Can I pray for you? Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to be gathered as a body of believers. Wherever we are, whether we're searching and, and wondering what this church thing is, what, what this Jesus guy is all about, or, or we've been here for years, you love us all the same, and we are a body because of you. I'm grateful to be part of that today and to, to experience that truth with this group of people. And Jesus, I ask that you, that you would take this story and many others and continue to mold us and, and form us, Lord, that we would become more like you. We are grateful today, Lord, for your grace, for your forgiveness, that you don't leave us in our mistakes and in our past, but you have a plan and a purpose for our lives. And I just ask that you would continue to work that in all of us today. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.